The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. Hi there. A quick request before we get to today's podcast. The Lab at DC is planning for our second form of Palooza workshop, and we need your help. Is there a government form that gives you grief? We want to know about it. Just visit formapalooza.dc.gov to tell us which forms we should make more user-friendly at this summer's event. That's formapalooza, F-O-R-M-A-P-A-L-O-O-Z-A dot dc.gov. Nominations are due April 3rd. Thanks. Hi, I'm David Yoakum, director of The Lab at DC. Today on the podcast, we're exploring the educational outcomes of young men of color. We're joined by Principal Benjamin Williams of Ron Brown High School here in D.C. and by Dr. Cesare Warren, Professor of Education at Michigan State University. In 2017, the district celebrated an all-time high of 73% of students graduating from high school. But as a district, we know we still have a ways to go in improving outcomes for our students. And as we think creatively about what those solutions look like, we have to more closely examine graduation rates along gender and racial lines. In that same year, 83% of white students received a diploma, while just 72% of black students did. Dig a little deeper, and you find that black males had the lowest graduation rates of all D.C. public and charter school students at less than just 60%. This isn't a challenge unique to D.C. Nationally, black males are 15% less likely to graduate high school than their white counterparts. Back in 2006, the city of Chicago decided to try a new approach to addressing the gap. They opened the first urban prep charter school. Yeah, so there are multiple um, reasons that led to the founding of Urban Prep. I guess the most basic reason is the thought that in that particular community where Urban Prep was founded, that there were no strong secondary options for black kids in general, period. I'm Cesare Warren, Assistant Professor of Teacher Education at Michigan State University. Dr. Warren is a nationally recognized researcher in the field of urban education and teacher education, and he also happens to be a former math teacher at Urban Prep. So this is part of a larger political move in the city that they call Renaissance 2010 at the time, where we're going to create 100 schools by the year 2010. Urban Prep was founded in 2006. So this is part of this larger initiative. And part of the thought is the public schools, the traditional public schools are not working for communities of color in particular. And we can talk about what they mean by not working. But the the schools are not working. We don't have the outcome. So we want to close schools and then be innovative and start new ones. So Q, um, Tim King, who is a native Chicagoan, went to high school in Chicago, moved away, got a law degree from Georgetown, came back and was principal of Hell's Franciscan, which is a private school that's no longer open on the south side of Chicago, serving all black boys on the south side. And he thought, I want to be able to replicate this school, but make it public and make it accessible to 
any families with the thought that having a single-sex schooling environment for black boys gives the school an opportunity to take a structural sort of stance or approach to the education of black boys that centers the needs of black boys specifically as different from girls or, or other students. And so that was sort of the impetus to found it. And I think even now, any charter school would say, well, parents deserve options. And it's not supposed to be the option to save black boys, but it's an option that can be really important and valuable to improving or changing the trajectory of black boys in the communities where the school is located. And I think that was his impetus for founding. Taking a note from Chicago, D.C. decided to create a school in the city to address this achievement gap. And in the fall of 2016, Ron Brown College Preparatory High School welcomed its first class of freshmen, a class exclusively of young men of color. Principal Benjamin Williams shares the experience. Young men of color in this city were graduating at, on average, 53%. That's a loss of a generation. And they saw that this was an opportunity to provide an additional resource to the city to address this specific need. And that's where the idea began. Urban prep was a model as are other models in, in the nation. And we just realized that we had to make it very D.C. The blueprint, I think, is very similar regardless of the angle that you come from. But it's addressing the idea that young men of color have been suppressed in being able to verbalize their emotions, verbalize their needs, verbalize for self, and to help build this idea of being intrinsically motivated, for the most part, generally speaking, in communities and our culture, that has been suppressed as well. There's been multiple times in media, multiple times in the community, multiple times in their day-to-day interactions that they've been beaten down and told that they'll never be successful and shown that this, you will never be this success. And so I think both of our organizations, or the uh, Urban Prep and, and Ron Brown College Preparatory, the whole idea is to uplift young men of color and show them another avenue to be able to write their own narrative without it being defined to them mm-hmm. and to giving, themselves, giving them a voice to any and everything, including their emotions and their feelings and their advocacy once they leave our space or while, even while they're in our space, but beyond that as well. Part of what we know about uh, the education of black boys in the U.S. is that black boys tend to be overrepresented for indicators of school failure and underrepresented for indicators of school success, right? So uh, astronomical rates of exclusionary discipline, over-referral to, uh, for special education services, under-referral to gifted education programs. We have all of this data that documents the problem, right? We can easily Google it and find all of the problems. So I sort of see these schools on the one hand as a sort of intervention, right? We want to disrupt these trends in the data, uh, broader national trends, and then getting locally, Chicago had similar graduation rates. The innovation in these schools is that you, the, the people who start them likely come from the perspective that these boys can do whatever they wanted. They automatically believe in the innate brilliance of black boys. That's an important starting point because there are a lot of folks who tend not to hold that particular perspective. And if you got those folks in positions of power and authority who get to organize the culture of a school and say every day young men are going to recite a creed that helps them to see themselves as bigger than the message that they're getting from society. We're going to evaluate our teachers by holding them accountable to building substantive relationships with black boys. You talk about cultural competence. We know that students of color value high expectations. They value care. But part of how we start to think about that is really learning from them and centering their perspective in the school's design and organization to understand what care means to them and then pushing ourselves to actually institutionalize commitments to caring for students in ways that they understand and receive. 
and translate care, right? So there are multiple layers of school design that take into account what black boys need from the perspectives of black men and, and black families and communities. Our school allows us to create an environment that is specific to one particular population who we're able to say culturally, how can we give them the opportunity to be successful? Uh, you have to find people who are similarly aligned to the mission and vision of improving the lives of young men of color and helping them learn how to write their own narrative. Uh, we also have to understand that stereotype threat exists. So mm -hmm. those students who already have been the only individual in honor classes, the only individuals in their AP classes who are moving on and matriculating to college, that idea of I'm holding the weight of the entire culture, the entire ethnicity, the entire race on my shoulders because I'm that representative that's gonna, that person is going to see and their perception is going to be developed by my performance. In this space, we're allowed to address each and every one of those needs. And it's not to say that you can't do that in a more comprehensive space. It's just that this environment allows us to, to specifically identify those needs on a day-to-day -day basis versus having to separate and try to do it in multiple different avenues. And mm -hmm. so uh, I think for us, that's what we're grounded in. And we're grounded in changing, tra changing trajectories, changing trajectories by breaking the school-to-prison pipeline. How do we do that? We look at restorative work, restorative practices being, again, culturally relevant. So then we can make those moves. And then, again, our main thing is really helping the young men how learn how to be intrinsically motivated, but also to be able to code switch throughout mm -hmm. not only the time that they're safe in our building, but once they're making decisions outside of the buildings. Can you say a little bit more what restorative justice means? That means in 18 months, I only have seven suspensions. Uh, I spoke earlier about advocating for self, taking responsibility, uh, having a voice, and your voice not being suppressed, but also being able to identify the emotion and feeling that was behind the decision that you made. If we're going to create productive citizens who are going to be agents of change, they have to be comfortable in themselves and with their voice. Um, and so for us, that's the purpose of restorative practices, is to make sure that we're not punitive in nature in any way, shape, form. It's to then move from an institutionalized model of helping young people learn from mistakes mm -hmm. versus being punitive in that nature, which then prepares them for the penal system. Mm -hmm. And so when you really talk about statistics, being suspended one time in your ninth grade year increases your chances of spending time in the penal system by 75%. Being suspended twice or more in your in your ninth grade year, you're now seeing a hundred percent to hundred fifty percent increase compared to the peer to your left or right. And those are numbers that we do not want to continue perpetuating in our society. We want to make sure that at some point we're breaking that, <clears throat> if only for. 415, 420 students, but we're breaking that chain for those individuals. Mm -hmm. We're going to be able to do it for everybody? Absolutely not. We're realists in that, but at least we're going to change the lives of one person, and that's all that really matters. So what does this concretely look like? You know, if we were to step into Urban Prep or Ron Brown, what's the day-to-day -day like? What's the physical environment? What's the teaching like? And how does that compare to a traditional public school? We have to be reactive on a daily basis. For example, this past weekend, we had two young men, high school age young men of color. Uh, they were killed. And one of the young men actually went to school with maybe 20 of our young men. And so we can't ignore that. And we can't ignore what media presents on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we have to be reactive in the moment. We have to be flexible enough in, in our mindset to be reactive because we can't sit as adults and force the young men to meet us where we are. We have to, at some point, or at most points, 
meet them where they are, but maintain high expectations at the same time. And that's it for me. It's just that flexibility piece because it changes weekly. Sometimes it changes daily. And your plan has to have a plan A through Z uh, because you do not know what the young men are going to come into the building with. And that has an impact on every structure that you have within the building based off of how they ex- what they experienced over a long weekend or what they experienced the night before. That can have a domino effect that's going to impact your entire institution. So what you want to do is to make sure that you have some strong structures in place, but know every day that the mindset has to be flexible. We have to be reactionary in most cases because the challenges are always going to be different. To Principal Williams' point, there are things that a school will do to be proactive, right? So I think about in the design of urban prep, recognizing how black boys are socially constructed in society, we need a creed that these boys will say every day that reminds them of their exceptionality, of their worthiness, of their capacity to to be whatever they want to be. That's proactive because every day, over four years saying this, they start to believe it. And that helps to sort of push back against a Charlottesville in a way that I'm not just responding, but I'm pointing us back to a cultural ethos that we have developed as a school. But the other piece of this is any teacher anywhere has to have the capacity to respond as students are showing up. What's different in a school like these, in schools that are characteristically urban, is recognizing the forces that are at play and making a decision about how you're going to see these young people. Because if I think of you as broken, I'm going to respond to you in a way that is broken. (laughs) If I see you as fully capable and brilliant, then I'm going to help you to reposition yourself and recognize and understand the structural conditions that created the issue that you're facing. I think about this as a very basic example. I realized when my students were talking a lot, telling them you all talk too much is actually just reinforcing the behavior versus if I said there are so many brilliant people in the room and brilliant people right now are silent. I'm leading with them being brilliant. So the orientation and the more that they hear that they're brilliant, that they're smart, that's just a very minor rhetorical move, but it has major impact over time for the ways that the kids start to see themselves. And then they start to bring up these issues and think critically. And ultimately, I would hope that we would want young people to look at these incidents and be critical of them from the perspective that it's not their fault. And so much of what they experience, they feel like this is just my fault and this is my lot in life. And everything that I'm experiencing, this is how it has to be. And I think school becomes a major intervention in helping to reposition them. Can you give it as an example where the unique environment of Ron Brown really allowed students to address something more directly than they might have been able to in a more traditional school space? Charlottesville, Virginia this summer, trying to bring young men into school building less than a week after it happened. And they feel it. Mm -hmm. They see it and they hear it. And then there was a response by our government that made it seem that it was acceptable and put the blame on the people who were there to support those who felt that this was an inappropriate action and see protesters who look like them being beaten, sprayed because of the color of their skin or their Mm -hmm. gender or whatever it might be. We had to recognize that because if you expected young men at 14, 15, 16 years old to ignore that and then transition into an instructional space where you're then asking them to read texts that is based in these beliefs, then you are not competent to the culture or you're not competent to the young men themselves. You know, we have a young man that might have gotten arrested in the building who made a bad decision outside of our space, and then that's their peer, that's their brother, 
and we now have to address like how are we going to move forward past this or how do we support him and this his family those are just two examples that you know of many that have occurred and we've only been in existence for 18 months so what would you say are the unique challenges that schools like urban prep and ron brown face how do we teach these young people to be critical thinkers such that they make decisions about the lives that they want to lead and we are not too cavalier and projecting onto their bodies what we envision success to be for them is where I'm finding that there is some tension in how single-sex schools are organized. So there's a great book about a decade of work compiled by Eddie Fergus, Pedro Nogueira, and Marjorie Martin from uh, New York University. And they wrote a book called Schooling for Resilience, where they study seven single-sex schools designed for boys of color in major cities around the country. Part of what they learn is that these schools have an explicit masculinizing function. Even by calling them the students young men, we are in some ways saying as a school, we have a commitment to cultivating young black manhood. The issue is, how do we conceptualize black manhood and how do we then teach that and transmit those messages to young people in ways that are anti-oppressive, that are not further marginalizing women, our girls of color, and folks who identify as gay and non-gender conforming. That's, I think, been an ongoing sort of challenge, at least in the ways that we think, but that has an impact on how those young men then situate themselves in the institution and who's successful in those institutions and who's not. But I think that's also part of it, right? There's this need to feel like we need to better cultivate young black men to be contributors to society. And these schools have held that sort of function as well. This is a a conversation I think you and I can have for, for hours. The idea that we're supposed to educate these young men across all realms of life, right? Like we're getting these young men when they have already had, generally speaking, eight to nine years of poor schooling experience mm-hmm. and who have been oppressed or have they've perceived themselves and the culture to be oppressed for you know 14 years of their lives. Mm-hmm. Our job is we only have a four year time frame with these young men. Is for us to get them to be intrinsically motivated and actually have some type of self-esteem before they leave our doors. And we get criticized with the way that we, we call our young men young kings. Um, we really present, hey, this is how to operate as a young man, a, a functional young man, once you leave these doors. These are the things that you're going to have to address as a young man as you continue to grow. But it's about getting them to a point to be functional. We can't even address some of the other issues, such as homosexuality in the community, such as equal pay, equal rights, equal across the board, when all you've known is oppression, when all you've known is the bottom of the barrel. And so how do you get that point to that point? Then you can start having the real conversations of now, what does equality look like when it's across genders? What does equality look like across race? Now that you feel that you are part of this society, what does that truly mean? And how do you become an agent of change and respect all aspects of culture? We have this debate internally within our school almost weekly. And so how do we adjust all of these things in four years. So our charge is beyond, I think, what comprehensive schools have to deal with because we are really targeting the most vulnerable population and we have much more than just to educate them academically. We have more social emotional learning work that we have to do Mm -hmm. before they can even feel comfortable enough taking chances in the academic arena. This is important because even in the literature, cultural responsiveness, all of these folks who have really written and made it abundantly clear that 
students' culture matters to how we educate them, particularly students of color, but it feels like such a Herculean task, like it's enormous. But part of what we know from black educators teaching in black schools and black communities pre-Brown is that this has always been the work of black education and the education of the whole child. It's never been solely settled on one's academic development. In fact, in tending to your holistic well-being, the academic stuff comes along and it's in there, you know, and the kids leave well-adjusted in part because we respond to them as humans. And that's important because we live in a society that doesn't view them as human. And we talk about black boys in particular uh, and the ways that black boys and men have been constructed as animals, as anti-intellectual, as deviant, as hypersexual. Anti-blackness has structured society's imagining of black boys and black bodies. So in the school, this is a necessary function of any school to respond to the humanity of young people. Also, the challenge then, though, is that we should not be positioning ourselves to save them. But they will raise all of the, the issues that we need to address. And so it's really, as an institution, how do I organize myself to be ready to just respond to the issues that get raised? Because I can't predict every single issue that's going to come up. But if we're talking about black boys or black girls or whoever, we're then necessarily talking about race, and we're necessarily talking about the intersection of race with gender. And when we do work on black boys, we tend to center that work in race. We tend not to do a good job of thinking about gender and sexuality for structuring young people's experiences in schools. And we could talk about how that's a big issue everywhere, but in single-sex schools in particular, those conversations, there's this sort of silent conception of manhood that folks sort of buy into. And I'm going to just speak from my experience, right? At this particular school, there was dominant ideology around manhood and masculinity that got projected and that was regularly transmitted. And what happens in an institution when those codes exist, as silent as they are, people notice those codes and then they start to police one another based on those codes. And if those codes are never explicitly identified and disrupted, especially if you are unintentionally silencing or muting certain identities in the space, then that space becomes oppressive. And we can't be silent about that. But we also have to recognize that's an issue that needs to be raised. So as we're thinking about how to replicate the successes of these schools, I'm wondering if you could highlight some of the examples of how teachers and administrators can adjust their their tactics, if you will, to better serve black boys. And, you know, maybe even before you go there, maybe stepping back and, and saying a little bit about how dynamics related to race are institutionalized in our public school systems. If you think of property, anytime I have property, I get the rights and privileges accorded to ownership of said property. So if I think of school as a sort of property, If I'm white, then it's likely wherever I go, because the norms of schooling tend to be skewed towards white social and cultural norms, white people are always naturally going to be successful in school because school is sort of privileging those points of view. So I think whiteness is not being able to notice the currency you have for moving through the world unencumbered and being able to recognize and see yourself everywhere and not noticing how the world is very different for different people. I'll say this. K-12 perspective, lowering of expectations when their peers are expected to do something very different and congratulating that individual, that young person of color, for reaching a benchmark and not holding them accountable to the highest benchmark that they have for everybody else in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, Far too frequently in, in the work that I've done in the research that I've read, you get a very different expectations for young people of color. 
because there's a lack of true self-reflection and identifying I am lowering my expectations for the student and I don't even know why that I'm doing it. Being receptive and being self-aware, I think, are the most important things to ensure that everybody has similar expectations but providing different resources to get them there. I think whiteness shows up when a colleague of color calls a white colleague out for lowering expectations and the colleague is like, that wasn't my intention, I didn't mean to, and they never own it. Whiteness is the majority of curriculum materials look like you and don't look like the students and you're teaching all black kids. Whiteness is requiring students to use standard vernacular English and not appreciating and acknowledging home languages, African-American vernacular English and recognizing um, that that is a legitimate language and forcing kids to talk like you. And I think whiteness is anything that upholds the superiority of white social and cultural norms. So forcing kids to all act, be, talk, the same. Anything that looks like control. And I think about Noah's Houston Charter Schools, you think about the number of uh, middle schools. First of all, they're all open in black communities. None of them are in white communities. That's a red flag. But in those same middle schools, everybody has to walk in the line. I think about KIPP. My first teaching job was at KIPP. The kids had to earn their desks. They had to earn their uniform. And the teachers would just yell at them. And there was this whole insistence on control. And whenever you see that and teachers are really uncomfortable with student creativity or um, doing something really different than what they're normal, what is normal to them, that can be property of whiteness. Okay, so going back to my first question then, what can we do differently in our schools to correct for this? It's an ongoing challenge in teacher education. There was a moment in the 70s and 80s where teacher ed said we actually need to acknowledge that not all students come to school are the same. <laughs> so multicultural education and so the folks got behind multicultural education. But then that became a sort of kumbaya, let's have tacos during Mexican American History Month and that be the end of it and not a real substantive recognition and understanding of race and specifically the history of white supremacy that has made the U.S. what it is. So I think that the, the move is how do we ask questions of race in our uh, preparation programs, whether that's alternative or traditional programs, such that folks not only recognize that race and racism structures education, but also the ways that they participate as oppressor and oppressed in the same system. That's a more difficult sort of task to take in part because lots of the folks who are responsible for teacher education and teaching methods courses and designing curriculum don't have that expertise either. So one of the things that I'm thinking about is how do we start to build some sort of resource that can be used both by teacher educators and pre-service teachers to ask questions of race across the, the teacher ed curriculum. I think you're hard-pressed to find any program that doesn't have at least one course that's like the diversity course. And they take that course and they sort of check it off. And by the time that the pre-service teachers get into a classroom, they're like, I think I heard a little bit about power in that one course I took sophomore year, but I have no clue why it matters now. And so there has to be ways that we sort of thread these concepts through a program and really help pre-service teachers identify how they've come to understand themselves as raced people. So in white women's work, the authors deal quite a bit with understanding white racial identity, white supremacy, whiteness, how that matters to one's positionality in relationship to communities of color in all of these different ways from all of these different perspectives. 
This is work that is ongoing, but I think our opportunity that we have in teacher education is to start the work by posing really important questions and starting to give pre-service teachers tools that they can then use in their future practice to continue to sort of explore. So, Doc, I have a question on that. Being that I've gone through those courses and have helped TA those courses, what are you putting in place to ensure that people have to voice their frustrations in those moments? Because we know that most people can retreat into a shell in order not to have the true conversation. And I think this is a problem of race relations and race conversations across our culture is that it becomes uncomfortable and that unwillingness to then engage exists. And so how do we really put that in front of the majority population and make them comfortable enough to have the conversation when it doesn't become a debate, where it then becomes a teachable moment to prepare for that class that's going to have multiracial and both gender populations in the space, and you have to be able to educate each and every one of them. It is it's really hard, and there's no way that we can control people's hearts and minds. Yep. I can present the information, and you can reject it. But I, I should feel some sort of professional obligation to present the evidence and present very compelling evidence. So when we see moments like Charlottesville happen, or I was teaching math methods when the uprising was happening in Baltimore, I could have just carried on, but I said I need to stop this class, and I need to tell the, I just need to show them some videos, and we just need to talk about what they see. And I think as a teacher... What's oxymoronic is that professors are not trained to be good teachers. So they have a really difficult time facilitating any sort of tense uh, conversation themselves. And they feel really uncomfortable. And so they feel like, I just need to be silent because Math Methods is not the place we talk about racial injustice in Baltimore. But actually, Math Methods is a place. English Methods is a place. Social Studies Methods is a place. Because if we don't have a conversation and normalize the conversation. So it shouldn't just happen when it's a black faculty member. It has to happen across the curriculum with everybody. Once you start to do it and normalize it, I think it becomes less of a discomfort. It's always going to be uncomfortable thinking about the ways that you're perpetuating a white supremacist regime. But it becomes less of a, whoa, we're having this big conversation when everybody's having a conversation. And everybody recognizes how important it is to have the conversation. I mean, these, these kind of conversations can be awkward and y'all have been facilitating these conversations throughout your work. And I'm, I'm curious if, as you've been doing this with your, your colleagues and your friends, particularly those of other races, have you gathered any insights on how to have these conversations in a more open and genuine way and, and in a manner that kind of breaks through some of the awkwardness that might otherwise be there initially? The worst thing in the world is not being called racist. Far worse is actually enacting racism and inflicting violence on a community. Part of making that an explicit, you're going to be racist, that ain't your fault. This is where we are, this is the country we live in, you're likely going to be racist and you're not going to know it until someone says, when you say that your logic is more valuable or important than my logic, that's a racist move. That's oppressive. And the whiteness studies would say, because white folks are going to be racist inherently, the only way that they know that they're being racist is when someone says, hey, what you just did was racist. And it's its own learning curve. So if you can imagine a white person who's had no interaction with any people of color for 18 years, and then they go to college, and for the first time they are in a dorm with a people of color, and they don't have any clue about the cultural differences amongst groups that are not white, you're going to do something, think something, say something that is racist. And that is rooted in the history. 
So this is why we know white supremacy is bad for everybody because we are all in some way implicated in perpetuating the system when we are not able to have these types of conversations. And when I have the conversations, I've had to stop being timid about even saying white supremacy in a a space that's predominantly white because of the uncomfortability of the white folks who are in the audience. And I have to be clear that white supremacy is not about you and your feelings right here, but it's about the ways we participate in a system that continues to perpetuate disabled persons, people who don't speak English, people who are not wealthy. This is a system of oppression that maps multiple social identities. So... If we don't have the conversation, we never disrupt that system. And I really try to appeal to people's moral values. Do we think everybody deserves a chance at life? Okay, if we all agree with that, and we have all of the the historical record would suggest that everyone has not had this chance, what are we going to do to make sure moving forward that everyone has this chance? And I think being kind and smiling and loving, right, all of us have to find space and love enough for the next human being to be able to call us all out. I need to be okay being called out when I'm saying or doing something patriarchal or sexist. All of us participate in these ways, and we all have to figure out how to navigate the discomfort. The inability to understand, I think, makes people hesitant. And the inability to want to understand a lens make people even more hesitant to have conversations because of the fear of being ignorant. I always talk to our young men about the fear of failure and the fear of success. I put the fear of ignorance in both of those columns. It is really difficult to know better. You can't do what you don't know. So I think professional development is a challenge. I think building capacity for folks to recognize when am I using a deficit perspective, when am I not, how to recognize it in my practice. How many of us went to schools or taught in schools or worked in schools where the adults talked really poorly about the kids and thought it was completely okay, right? I interviewed a group of black boys and they talked about the ways that they knew adults in the building talked about them. And so they were no longer in that environment thriving. They were in that environment surviving. And they were holding teachers in contempt because they knew that the teachers were holding them in contempt. And this went unaddressed for years. And when I raised the issue to the faculty, no way that the kids said that. Well, what reason do they have to make it up? And what reason do I have to make it up? So I think that that's a huge piece, helping teachers to sort of see themselves and to see school in a way that really focuses on the assets of young people. That I, I see that as one thing. When you get into a comprehensive schools and you have 2,000 student high schools and you have 200 to 250 school personnel, those biases present themselves in moments that school leaders, coaches in the building can't be in those spaces to discuss or to at least help that staff member identify, right? And so then those students feel it. Those students then make the comments such as, I know that this person feels this way about me. And that that adult will not even be able to express or own that because they don't even know that they're presenting it. That, to me, is one of the major problems that we have in education is that people are unwilling to be self-reflective to the point that they're really completely honest about their struggles with young men of color, with young women of color, with the young people of the majority population, or even with foreigners themselves that are coming into their space. Looking forward, I'm trying to think about what ultimate success looks like here. And for me... I think the conversation we've had so far has really showcased the kind of immediate need that we have to carve out spaces by by race or maybe by gender to facilitate some of these conversations because there are things about the traditional public school environment that 
make it impossible to have these conversations in a way that young kids right now need to have them. But looking forward, I, I assume we don't want to stay there. I, I assume that we want to take the things that we're learning about how to facilitate these conversations and bring them back to the public schools so that whenever there are things like Charlottesville or other problems, you know, maybe there are moments where people have to kind of talk in, talk in subgroups for a minute, but there is that moment where we come back together as a larger group to talk about this. And so with that in mind, I mean, where do you, as you look forward, whether it's years or decades, or I don't know how long it would take, what does ultimate success look like in this environment? The things that give me the most joy, I think, is when my students start to ask really hard questions and they start to take off the layers of stuff that they've been taught and told and starting to think a bit more critically about why systems work the way that they work and their role in disrupting those systems. At any level, pre-K all the way up through one's doctoral preparation is learning how to ask questions and notice stuff that is not readily apparent how to see the unseen, so to speak, and then figuring out how to build and innovate to respond to persistent problems. I teach a course on classroom management, and my students come in at the beginning of the year really just wanting to know how do they disarm conflict. And by the end of the year, I call it successful when they learn that conflict is a really important, valuable part of their job, and that conflict actually says the students are learning and unlearning, and that's an important part of the job. And that much of their work is about how do I negotiate meaningful human interaction and what tools do I have to do that? That right there, I think, is a success because they're starting to identify they're as much a part of the problem and the solution as they feel like they're not because the system is so big and they feel like, where do I start? So I, I would say that that's success in a lot of ways. For me, I view success as our young people returning to give back to the new class of students because they've now been able to navigate and create their own narrative and explain how to do that. Student talk is the most powerful learning tool that we have. Peer-to-peer -peer conversations build success, much more than we as adults can do as we're trying to educate young people. Overall success for us as a school is that all of our young men are functional and are able to code switch, navigate, and create own narratives, and then give back. That giving back piece I think is the most important thing that has been lost in the African-American community because now we've had so many different opportunities over the last 40 years that didn't exist to the prior 300 years before that. And so helping them understand the importance of being that beacon on the hill for others and then their tentacles growing and building their networks where people see them as the model of excellence. If we can get to that, then conversations are very different because they have a worldly view that they're able to have firmer, tougher conversations without feeling offense and without having to carry the mantle their entire lives because now they know they have a brotherhood of graduates that are there to support them and that they can lean on. So there's no longer the idea of having to walk this path alone. Special thank you to Principal Benjamin Williams of Ron Brown High School and Dr. Cesare Warren of Michigan State University for the discussion. If you'd like to learn more about the topic, Dr. Warren has a new book out. It's called Urban Preparation, Young Black Men Moving from Chicago's South Side to Success in Higher Education. The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the Executive Office of the Mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. 
Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.